0: Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to another episode of Don't Keep Your Day Job. So, last night was the first night of Passover, and this coming Sunday is Easter. And I know that it's so not ideal, right? It's like we're used to having these holidays with family and friends, and it feels so off to just be so separated from the people that we love in these moments. And I'm just sending everybody a hug. I totally understand uh, what that feels like. Our Seder was not the same last. Last night. And um, I did just want to share a couple things about the meaning of Passover, because I felt like it's so apropos for what we're all going through right now. So what is it about? What are we, what are we celebrating? What are we honoring? What are we doing? Let me tell you. So freedom, right? So what does it mean to be free? So here's what we learn. We learn that we think that we're free. Like, thank God a lot of us live in, in free societies. Thank God for that. I cry on the 4th of July because I'm so grateful because I know what it means that my grandparents and great-grandparents and great-grandparents lived in places where they weren't free. Um, so I love this country and I love that we're free. But what does freedom really mean? It's not just about being free that you can vote, thank God, or that you can drive a car or whatever else. What do you really want to be free from? Like what's really still holding you back? What are you a slave to? And what we don't realize is sometimes we're a slave to being so busy or we're a slave to money or we're a slave to our anger or we're a slave to our ego. And so Passover is about sort of like releasing ourselves from that bondage of like, what is our, what is our personal Egypt? What is our personal thing that's like holding us down. And I think what's really interesting is that for me personally, I can only speak for myself. I am having a dualistic experience right now. Like part of this quarantine is so hard and I have moments where I just feel like crying. And part of this quarantine feels like a gift because I feel like I was praying on some level to to release from the constant cycle of busyness, and to have presence and stillness. And my family and I are doing things that feel more grounded. I feel like I'm spending quality time like in nature, and I feel like I'm cooking and cleaning, which I am. And there's something about it that in a way feels liberating that I've been liberated from this hamster wheel. Sometimes we're chasing things and we're like, what, what game am I even playing? Is this even a race I want to win? What are we doing? So it's an interesting thing to ask yourself, like, what do I really want to be liberated from? And what in this moment, what today do I want to be liberated from? What is, is there anything I'm a slave to that's not serving me? is am I reacting constantly in this angry way? Am I constantly looking for evidence that somebody's out to get me or my husband doesn't love me or am I constantly a slave to achievement and I have to achieve something? Like that's the juice. That's, what's, that's what it's about because we didn't release from bondage. We didn't try to get out from being under Pharaoh's like arm just so we could become a slave to money or a slave to whatever else, right? This is the epicness and what's so cool about the seasons is that there's a time that's always the same time meaning this thing right which is the exodus from egypt which really happened this is history this happened in this time so the time the stars the astrology whatever's going on in this month in this energy of spring it's the same time so time is not linear it's cyclical which means that energy is present right now, which means, yes, you can always release yourself from bondage at any time of the year, but there's like a more potent energy of that right now. You see it. You see things being reborn. You see people doing purging and spring cleaning. There's an energy to that now. Just like in the winter, there's like a more, we go inside, we're we're cold, we want to, there's a darkness, right? And, and then in the summer, there's like a lot of bright light, so That's what Passover is. And I also want to say one more thing about Passover. So we eat masa on Passover. Everybody knows that. It's like this really thin cracker. And it's like, why the heck do we eat that? What's the symbolism of it? Obviously, there's a reason. The reason we eat masa is because masa is just unleavened dough, right? It's like it's bread that just didn't take that extra 18 minutes to rise. We took it out before it had the time to rise. So what is it symbolizing? Well, when bread is risen, when it's leavened bread, it's filled with what? Hot air. It's filled with hot air. So the idea is that what we want to come back to on Passover is our soul, our self, without the hot air, without the ego, just our self. Isn't that awesome? So it's about releasing from the ego, releasing from all the stuff that's like I'm a person who needs this validation. I'm this age and I'm this, this, and I live on this zip code, which makes me have this status, all that garbage that has nothing to do with your essential soul and your essential light in the world. It's done. It's not about that. It's about the essence. It's about what really is the essence. Also, one more Passover teaching for you is that when they knew they needed to leave Egypt, they were scared because they knew that. And sometimes the suffering we know, the enemy we know is less scary than what could be out there. Like, is there a freedom? Is there a promised land? Maybe I'll just stay here because I know this. I know what this is like, at least to be in slavery. So sometimes we attach to our suffering, we attach to our slavery because the fear of the unknown or the expansiveness of unleashing from this thing is so scary. So what we understand is that the reason that they couldn't wait is because here's a really good teaching. When you know you have to do something, do it. Don't overthink it. And so just go, because if you overthink it and you sit there, you're going to go, Moses, I'm going to follow this dude into the desert. No way I'm not going in there. There's no water. Forget it. But that initial clarity was there. And so they were like, I'm just going. I'm not overthinking this. Because if I overthink of this, I'm not going to go. And do you know what the truth is? Remember, this is history. 80% of the Jewish people stayed in Egypt and died. Only 20% left. Isn't that amazing? That's crazy. So when you know that you need to do something, if you hesitate, the fear is going to overwhelm you. You gotta just do it sometimes you gotta just go and then one last teaching what what happened? The story goes that there was like there were between a rock and a hard place, right? There's like Pharaoh's armies coming after them, the water's in front of them, and they just head towards the water, and this one guy like walks in. His name was Nakshon and he walks in and he keeps walking and everyone's looking at him like, is he going to drown himself? What's he doing? And as soon as he gets like all the way above the water over his head, boom, the sea splits. Now, whether you believe that that happened or it didn't happen, that metaphor is awesome because what it's saying, that story is teaching you that like you go all in, you do your part and that's boom, the magic meets you there. And I think for so many of us, we've seen that in our own life, literally. We're like, you take a step and you're scared and then something happens. The synchronicity is just like unbelievable, but only because you had the courage to open up the gates and you opened the gates because you burned the boats. You know, Tony Robbins always says, if you want to take the island, what do you do? You got to burn the boats. Then you take that island, right? So it's kind of like you go all in, boom, floodgates open. So speaking of all that wisdom that I learned, um, I thought that it would be fitting to have one of the greatest teachers of my life on the show. And I wasn't sure when, and he happened to be visiting from Jerusalem about a month ago. And so I interviewed him at my house and it wasn't yet the coronavirus pandemic. This was like the beginning of February. So right before that, but I think the conversation that we had is so filled with meaning. And here we are in this week between Passover and Easter. And I felt like Maybe I can just share him with all of you. He is such an incredible person. He is so near and dear to my heart. He really single-handedly, like, changed my life and, and brought me so much more meaning. His name is Rabbi David Aaron. He is a, incredible author, a visionary, and a master speaker. He has written incredible books that have reached hundreds of thousands of people worldwide. He has spent decades exploring life's biggest, most challenging questions. And we're going to get into some of that during this episode. I'm not exaggerating when I tell you that I honestly don't know where I would be without him. I think especially now in this time, people are asking like, why is there so much pain? And what am i supposed to do with all of it and how can there be any meaning in the world when things like this seem so so tragic and i felt like this would just be a really productive conversation so whether you believe in god or the universe or whatever it is i just think you're going to find this conversation really powerful he's such a gifted teacher uh larry king actually once did an interview and it was Rabbi Aaron, Deepak Chopra, Marianne Williamson, and Billy Graham's son. And uh, I think he just has so much to bring to the world in terms of wisdom. So without further ado, please welcome the incredibly kind, so, so wise, Rabbi David Aaron. This is such a treat. I don't think I'm overstating it by saying like you gave me permission to be myself, to know that I was needed. So anyway, it feels incredibly special that you're here
1: oh thank you wow (laughs) what a kind introduction
0: so we're gonna talk about some of the things that you hold closest to your heart that you walk around sharing so generously uh but before we do i thought it would be interesting to share your journey so can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be
1: you wow wow well, I, I actually I didn't wake up and want to write books. I woke <laughs> up to my mother screaming in the middle of the night. When I was uh, younger, uh, my mother's a survivor of the Holocaust, and uh, one night I woke up to her screaming. And my mother was the kind of survivor that never spoke about the Holocaust. I just knew something horrible, horrible, horrible happened. To My mother and my grandparents were murdered. I I knew that. I didn't know anything more about that. And so one night I woke up, my mother was screaming and I was sure she was having a nightmare of the concentration camp. And that night I was bombarded with questions. Is there a God? And if there's a God, is he good? And if he's good, why is the world so bad? And, uh, I was set up to be a philosopher at a very young age, asking these big questions that I had nobody to go ask these questions to. I couldn't ask my mother cause she didn't want to talk about this. I couldn't talk to my father. I had nobody talked to the, anybody about these questions. So basically what I did is I spent many of my years running away from my questions, which was really running away from myself. And you know, you can run, but you can't hide cause where you run, there you are. And, um, and then uh, I actually met somebody who um, started giving me answers. And I, I was like, it blew me away. So that was the beginning of my journey. I, if I had to describe myself in a couple words, I would say I'm a son of a survivor. Everything I do is coming from that pain. And I would say a huge amount of my life, probably all of my life, is just about if in any way I can help people live with less pain. And hopefully with more joy but I'm extremely feeling pain in the world and just so much in my mother's eyes and so uh, that's even why I think I, I like to be funny because I don't remember my mother ever having like a belly laugh so I maybe I just want to help others laugh the laugh that I didn't see so much my mother have. So I, I just, so many people are in pain, so many people are wounded, and there's so much, so much brokenness. If I can, in any way, contribute to helping people feel more whole and feel more happy and feel more at peace with themselves and more kind towards themselves, then that will be my
0: reward. It's really hard to listen to someone who's just so genuine and so good. You know, the stakes are really high, and most people are just not really present, and you are so present. One of the, th- the things that you told me, which I repeat all the time, you guys listen to the show, you've heard me say it, well, I said to you, how do you understand my pain? I think we had known each other for two days at that point. And I said, well, what am I going to do with all of this? And you said to me that day, I was 21 years old, Kath, it's a gift. And I said, why? And you said, because you can't help someone out of a well unless you've been down there. Hmm. It's so powerful. And it's what you just said and what you just shared as you're talking about who you are and what you want to do with every day of your life is like that pain turned into so much purpose.
1: Yeah, you know, it's kind of... It takes one to know one, and I believe it takes one to help one. And if you can feel another person's pain by accessing your own experience of that pain too in your own way you're able to help people that's why i think in in a funny way that's sometimes the greatest gift that you know that the challenges that we've gone through in our lives is training us to be able to help others in those same challenges yeah, yeah. so in the strangest way the the pain in our lives is what's going to probably be their greatest asset in her and helping other people's lives. Yeah.
0: And one more thing I want to say on it is that I feel like so often people love to give advice. Right. And what I'm always thinking is you're talking to people, mostly adults who by the age of nine got their heart broken. Like, I don't know anybody whether it's capital T trauma or little t trauma. I don't really care. Like everyone has been through some loss and some, some real big heartache. And what I've found is that the pain is so great and nobody stops to notice it very often. We don't know what to do with other people's pain. And so what people do is they come up with a great strategy, which is, oh, um, I won't want very much or I won't dream very far because I don't want to get hurt. Right. So the inner child work, you know, the pain and seeing people's pain. And the thing that you do better than anyone else I've ever met is is notice and witness that in other people.
1: Mm. Well, I learned it from my wife, uh, a very powerful lesson. When we were having our first child, and uh, Hannah was uh, in labor, and she was coming close to the end, and it was the most intense contractions. She came out of that, and she said, I might be in excruciating pain, but I'm not suffering. And then she went into excruciating pain. And she came out of that and she said, suffering is when you go through pain that has no purpose. This is the most purposeful pain I could ever hope to have. And she taught me such an incredible lesson, which to me, if a woman could say that at that moment, that's like revelation, that pain without purpose is suffering. But pain with purpose is power. And that's what I try to help people do. Find the power in your pain by giving it purpose. Mm -hmm. You've learned something through that pain. You've you've developed empathy because you know what it means to be hurting. Mm -hmm. And therefore, you can hear other people hurting. Mm -hmm. And even if you can't offer any advice but just hear them hurting, Mm -hmm. Yeah. They'll hurt a lot less.
0: Yeah. It's so powerful. In fact, one of your other students says all the time, which I love, but he says the opposite of depression is not happiness. It's purpose. Hmm. So good.
1: Wow. I actually say a little different.
0: Okay. What do you say?
1: I say the opposite of depression is not happiness. It's sadness. And that the reason why people are depressed is they haven't given themselves permission to be sad. And you have good reasons to be sad. And you should feel your sadness. And you should acknowledge that your sadness is valid. But when I feel somehow guilty that I'm sad, yeah. or I feel embarrassed or shame that I'm sad. So what I do is I spend a lot of time running away from it. And then it catches up to you and you become depressed. Yeah. So yeah. I, I think a lot of people are depressed because they haven't allowed themselves to be sad. And they want to move from depression to happiness. I don't think it works that way. I think you move from depression to sadness. I'm in pain. I've been disappointed. Things have not worked out according to my dreams. Somebody hurt me, and I'm hurt, and I feel that. So uh, I Mm -hmm. think a lot of times people are so afraid of feeling their pain that they do all kinds of things to run away, whatever those things are. It catches up with you and then you get
0: depressed. You know, hearing this from a, a scholar and a rabbi and a person who is so regarded, I mean, in every way, I think for so many people, they've never heard a religious figure say it's okay to be sad. I feel like there's a lot of like, you should be happy all the time. Like, did you encounter that in your own life? Like looking for answers and studying? Oh yeah, <laughs> Sure.
1: Yeah, I've I've had my own share of pain, and I recently read an article, which is really interesting, that 90% of our pain is coming from within us. And uh, I I would say, yeah, that's true in my own life, that a lot of my pain is self-administered because of the way I'm interpreting, the way I'm thinking, the expectations I'm setting on myself and not being compassionate enough towards myself. I think that's why I've been successful at being uh, an educator is because I'm, I'm not teaching people what I think they need. I was looking for answers, you know. I I was riddled with, uh, tormented by so many questions, and so I needed to find answers to find my own peace. Mm-hmm. And I found that those answers seemed to be helping other people too. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very happy about that. I have the problems that. Everybody else has, and yep. I'm just trying to do the best I can and, and find a way to turn it into power and turn it into creativity.
0: And you are so creative and funny. Um, it took me like a year to tell my audience I believe in God. Mm. I thought people would hate me or judge me or never listen to this show again. I don't know. I feel like God gets a really bad rap. Mm. And you were the first person that helped me have a relationship with God and know what that was and and um and not feel scared of God and and not want to run away from that idea. And I know that you said before one of your first biggest questions is there a God and if there is a God how could something bad like that have happened and What's worse than that? Nothing. So for people who are listening who struggle with that, I'm curious how you can share with them what God means to you. And I'm also curious if you struggle or like if it bothers you when people say, I don't believe in God, and how you sit with that.
1: Okay, wow, wow. Uh, So how many hours is this show? 17. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I, I came to realize recently that, my life's mission has been rebranding God. So good. That's really what I realize I'm doing. Because what most people think, what they feel when they think about God is they don't feel good. And they feel disempowered. They feel judged. Yeah. They feel small. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, basically his point in his issues with God is, I can prove to you that God is not good because his very existence makes me feel bad about myself. You know, because... Nobody likes to have perfect friends. and so so, true. (laughs) um, But that's because there's so much misconception around God. I'm not even comfortable using the word anymore. Yeah. So when somebody says to me, I don't believe in God, that makes sense to me. And nobody's ever had a, a real mature discussion with people. Most people's God is the God they heard about when they were children. I used to do this workshop where I'd have people write a letter to God. Almost every letter was a letter of complaint. It was, dear God, I wanted to ask you why you took my grandmother. Dear God, it was all about all the bad things you've, God has done to me or to the world. And I remember this one woman, she wrote a letter, and it was, dear God, I always wanted to ask you, how did you make the world so beautiful? How did you put the fragrance in the flowers? How did you teach the birds to sing? And it was this positive letter, and everybody else in the room hearing her give the letter were like rolling their eyes cynically, like, oh my gosh, how is it possible to feel positive? But I believe that most disbelievers are the most profound believers because this is kind of what I I ask my audiences. I say, how many people here love life? Mm. Well, everybody loves life. (laughs) How many people here love love? How many people here love kindness, compassion, integrity, peace? So everybody says yes. I say, okay, well then you're what we call Lovers of God. Wait a second. What's that got to do with God? See, because most people think that God is some invisible man in the sky somewhere over there. And that's not the teachings that I've been, you know, sharing and, and that I've been influenced by. In our tradition, God is life. God is love. God is kindness. God is peace. And infinitely beyond all that. And so, what does it mean to believe in God? To me... Like, I don't know what gravity is. I've never seen gravity. (laughs) But I know that there's gravity in my life when I feel a force pulling me down. And I've never seen God, and I don't understand God. But I know and I feel the presence of God in my life when I feel a force pulling me up. And so anybody that feels a pull to do more, to be more kind and more compassionate, to find purpose and to find meaning you're a believer, you're what I call uh, someone who has the indications of a believer. If you really, 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 really believed in a big bang and that this was all an accident, then why do you believe so deeply that you matter and you treat so many other people like they matter? So to me, believing is an act. And it really doesn't matter what you say, you believe or not, what matters is what you do.
0: It's like no one's heard goodness like what you just said. Everyone needs to hear that. Now, the thing is, you said that we know that somehow we matter and we treat other people like where they matter, and it's true. But I think we often know that other people matter more than ourselves. And one of the, the most profound gifts of my life was when I was first spending time with you, how what completely reset everything for me was believing that I was needed. I don't know that people think that they are. So people need to hear it. They don't quite get it. And, and one of the things that you say that I quoted in my book is that we're all a masterpiece. We're a piece of the master and that God needs us. Can you tell me why that's true? How do I know that I'm needed?
1: Okay. So uh, I'm going to throw out a very deep idea. You know, people have asked me, well, how do you know God is good if the world is so bad.
0: That's a really good question. That's
1: the question. Well, the truth is that God is not good. Good is God. When we say God, we're talking about the personification of all good. That's what we mean. When we say God, when we talk to God, we're talking to good. And, and when we serve God, that means to serve good, not serve some ego in heaven. It's to serve good and to bring more good to the world. That's what it means to serve God, because God is the personification of all good. Now, let's think about the implications of, the, of absolute good. Let's say I have two friends. One of my friends is kind, was kind, always will be kind, cannot but be kind. They're obsessively compulsively kind. But I have another friend that kindness isn't coming natural, and he, he has a number of challenges. And he knows it's right to be kind. So even though it's a challenge, he's gonna to choose to be kind. So what do we intuit? What would be a greater manifestation or a richer manifestation of kindness? A kindness that is done purely by nature or a kindness that is expressed through my choice?
2: Mm. I think
1: we'd all intuit that when a person demonstrates kindness, as an act of choice. that's a very rich kind of kindness. So let's go back to God being absolute good. Is the absolute good missing the possibility of expressing a kindness born of choice? And the answer is, well, if you say that the absolute good is missing that possibility, then the absolute good wouldn't be absolutely good. Well, hmm. So that's who we are. Because in our teachings... You are a part of God. You are a part of absolute good. What part of absolute good are you? You're the part that can choose good, even when you don't feel like it. To choose love, even when you don't feel like it. And therefore, what does it mean that I'm needed by God? It means I'm an essential expression of this truth about God which is a goodness that can be manifest through choice. Mm. And every time a person chooses to do good, especially when they don't feel like doing that good, they have just lived the purpose of their very being.
0: Mm -hmm. And I wish George Lucas was sitting here, because that's Star (laughs) Wars. That's it. It's like, is he choosing the... The, is he going with the force or the dark side? And like that's the whole journey is like he's going to choose the good, right? We're rooting for the hero in all of us to choose right. the good. It's that choice, and yeah. that's what we look at in someone else and we go, whatever that is, that's what brings me to tears. That courage to keep right. choosing the good. Right. So what you're saying is that whatever's the badness, the, the the evil in the world, that allows then for there to be choice. Right. Uh Which then creates the highest good. That's right. It's amazing. And we talk about making that choice all the time and and how that is like, that's the journey we're all on. We all know that we're built to serve on some level and yet we get these tests and we have to keep choosing to move forward.
1: So, you know what I call that? I call that, what good are you? (laughs) Because you're a certain kind of good that is waiting to be chosen. And generally, you can know what kind of good you are by the negative urges that you're most challenged by. That's exactly what you've come to the world to do, to say no to that and say yes to a higher choice. And I think a lot of people just don't believe in themselves. You know, they don't believe in themselves. I remember I was speaking to a rabbi and he said, you know, people do believe in God. They just don't believe that God believes in them. And I don't need a God that doesn't believe in me. I know plenty of people that don't believe in me. So I don't need a God who's everywhere all the time, also not believing in me. That's just not so true. That's not true at all, right? God so believes in each and every one of us because we are, so to speak, a part of God. We're that part of God that can choose to be godly. And so everybody has this opportunity. Precisely where I'm most challenged, precisely where it hurts the most, Waiting underneath that hurt is tremendous power and purpose. And when we release that, but first we have to believe that it's there and that I matter mm-hmm. and I matter to the world. And the world is counting on me to do that and give them permission to do the good that they've come to this world to do.
0: Yeah. I feel like one of the things that comes up so often is people will say, Why should I bother? Starting the bakery, doing the podcast, writing the blog, being a rabbi, when there's already 50 other people better than me. This one already has a blog. This one already wrote a book. Why should I write a book? What do I have to add? It's been done.
1: It's never been done. Because just as your fingerprint is unique and will be never repeated in all of history, your soul print will never be repeated in all of history. And therefore, you, you could never repeat what anybody else has done because it's you. And you, when we talk about being created in the image of God, means you've been created in the image of uniqueness. And that you have a responsibility to all of us, kind of like a puzzle, where every piece in the puzzle has to be itself, so that everybody else can be themselves. Because without you, we can't complete this puzzle.
2: Mm.
0: That's so beautiful. Um, People ask me all the time how they're going to start when they're not ready, right? And um, I was wondering what you would say about it because people have talent and gifts. I see it every day. I'm like, that's beautiful. That's what you want to do. That's incredible. That's what's inside of you. Oh my God, that's what's whispering to you. And they're all missing momentum and they're missing momentum because, oh, well, I can't do it until it's perfect. I can't start it until it's ready. It's going to be a mess. It's going to be, and they won't give themselves permission to write the first messy chapter to reach out to the person. No, they can't do it. In your life experience, with your wisdom, how do you do something when you feel like it's going to be messy, you're going to fail at it, um, it's not perfect, and you're not ready, so you have to keep waiting?
1: So I think that maybe you didn't fail, but only failed at your definition of success. And that most people think the success is I got the book written, I got the podcast out there. Actually, according to the teachings that I've been raised in, your success is you chose to do it. And then the rest you give to the master of the universe. But you just choose to do it. And then let go. That's your department. Everybody has to know their department. And your department is choose to do the good that you can uniquely do. And then let it happen. But I think we are trying to control too much and we're trying to take ownership of what's not ours. We don't know what's going to be. We only know what we're going to choose to do. And that's your success. You chose to make that phone call. That's amazing. That's your success. That's what you should pride yourself in. I said, I made the choice. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I believe that dream, I don't know where it'll go but allow yourself to dream and allow yourself to make that call or to just choose to act and see where it goes. And I think a lot of time, and the other day I was speaking to somebody and they were very, very sad because things haven't worked out for them. And so they said, I must've made the wrong choice. And I said, that's not true. That's not true. Everything you told me was the right choice. And that was the right choice. What came out of it, that's not in your hands. Yeah. So very often people will look back and say, I must have made the wrong choice. No, you made the right choice. And then the rest, you have to surrender and say, well, wherever it goes, your job is to choose to do good. Release the power within yourself and allow the dream. There's a teaching of Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook that said, if there's a line in your soul that hasn't yet been drawn then the world can be complete. So in everybody, there's this line that I, I need to go draw. And the world is waiting for me to do that, Ugh, to release that. So what comes out of it, that's already not my business. I made the choice.
0: You're a gift. The thing is that one of the biggest things we found in this doing this podcast is that everyone's teaching people on their shows how to build a business, how to be successful, We realized that 80% of our audience didn't know what their thing was. So before I can build it, what the heck is my thing, right? There's a big existential crisis around what the heck is my purpose, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, And a lot of times we have an idea of what it is and then that door doesn't open. So we say, oh, see, it didn't work. How do we figure out what my purpose is?
1: Right. So growing up, the common question we ask our children, or I was asked as a child, is what do you want to be when you grow up? As if I would know what I want to be when I grow up. Right. But really, (laughs) the question that we should be asked, and maybe we can't answer it as children, is what problem do you want to be part of solving in the world? You see, we have an idea in our teachings that, that the world needs tikkun, fixing. And that we're all really repair people. What is the problem in the world that disturbs you that you'd like to be part of yeah. solving? Yeah. That's where your purpose is waiting for you. Yeah. And so um, I think that's where we start in terms of finding a purpose and yeah. starting off with saying, I just want to be in service. I just want to help fix a little bit more of what's broken. And so, what is it you, you notice? that's broken, if you see it's broken, then so go be part of fixing it.
0: Yeah. One thing that comes up with this, see, our, one of our most downloaded episodes, the title is How to Live Life on Your Terms. Okay? Mm. So now here's the interesting thing. People want so much to feel seen, right? They want to live in alignment with themselves. In fact, the number one regret of the dying when they've done these studies is that people don't feel like they lived their life. They lived the life their mother wanted them to live, their uncle wanted them right? Okay, so hold that for a second. We've got that. And then we just said, solve other people's problems, okay? A lot of people get stuck right there. And then they don't choose at all because they get stuck right there. I've met a lot of artists who say, okay, so you made money writing music for film and TV, which is eventually what I did for about a decade. And I would, I would talk to people at Disney Soundtrack. What story are you telling? I'll write that song. I was happy to do it. People don't know sometimes how to balance in my selling out Am I living life on my terms if I'm all about you? Right? How do you sort of like put that together?
1: Well, I don't know. As soon as I say on my terms, I feel I kind of cut myself off from being part of a bigger team. I think it's about what's our terms? It's not your terms, it's not my terms. It's let's figure out the win win situation. We're not an island, we we're not self contained we're part of a greater reality. And that's when we feel happy when we're part of a greater reality. So when it's all my terms, I'm not sure people are going to be happy because I'm playing this game myself. And, you know, if I want to be part of a game, there are terms. On the mm-hmm. other hand, I don't want to lose myself. That's right. that's really what love is all about. Do I have to give up me for there to be a we?
2: Yeah, right.
1: But, but on the other hand, you know, if it's just about me, how are we going to get to the we? So... There is a balance, and there is a, a healthy uh navigating between you know what I think is an absolute bottom line what I need and what I need to realize that to be part of a greater whole i can I can look over that yeah. I can let go of that,
0: yeah, well, one thing that's fascinating can we talked about it before is purpose and the studies that they've done now. We had this woman on Emily Esfahani Smith and she's done all this research. She has a great TED talk called Why Happiness is Overrated. Mm. And she has evidence to show that what really lights people up is contribution. Yes. So really the what's in it for me is that that's really what you want like living life on your terms is how much can you contribute that's going to make you feel as big as you could possibly be i know for myself as soon as i started the show right which is i'm just shining a light on other people helping other people hopefully who are listening right now to feel empowered to move i've never felt more seen but my question every day is how can i be of use right what do you think about that
1: well you know i i heard it put very well you know. You're at a construction site and you don't know what you're doing there. Someone hands you a bag and you look in your bag, and in your bag, there's a saw, there's a hammer, there's a nail. Oh, I get it. I'm a carpenter. The guy next to him, he gets a bag, and in his bag, there's testers and wires and fuses. Go, oh, I get it. I'm an electrician. What's in your bag? You know, what's in your bag? I mean, what was in my bag is public speaking. I understand that the number one fear in the United States is public speaking. The number yep. two fear is death. That means that if I was asked to give a eulogy, I'd prefer to be in the box. That's Jerry Seinfeld. Okay. <laughs> but I don't, I don't have a problem with public speaking. It's just something that since I'm a child, I was, I was acting. I was getting on stage. I don't have a problem with public speaking. It's just a gift. It was in my bag. Now the question is, what am I going to do with that? So as a child, I wanted to go into acting. But later on, when I got to Israel, I said, you know what? A rabbi's kind of like acting, not faking, but like, what, what did I really want to do? I wanted to use my skills in communication to help people, to uplift people, to inspire people, empower people. That's really what I wanted to do. But there's something else in the bag that this rabbi didn't acknowledge, which I think is important. There's something broken in your bag. Mm. And that is so important to figuring it out. Because what's broken in your bag is telling you where you've been trained in empathy. And so I, I recently met a woman uh, in Svat, actually, this Shabbat. And she, for so, so many years, she had a very abusive childhood. She was very abused as a child. And she became a child psychologist. Yeah. And she said, Only now I realize that had I not gone through that, I could not have helped so many children because I really, really wouldn't have understood what they're going through because I wasn't there. And I look back and realize that was all a gift Mm -hmm. because that's what enabled me to have this capacity to be so helpful. And so I think very often people think that the things that are broken in their bag should be discarded. And it's just trash.
2: Mm.
1: No, there's no trash in your life. Just treasures. You have to recycle the trash and turn it into treasures. And so I believe that, that we've been given strengths, but we've also been given challenges. And those challenges are just as important in figuring out what my purpose is as my strengths are. Because just going back to, so what is the problem you want to be part of solving? It's generally the problem you yourself have to face. And that's why it takes one to know one yeah, and it takes one to help one.
0: Yeah. It's so, so I, I love that. What's in your bag. It's so beautiful. You know, one thing that comes up for everybody is, uh, let's say they figure it out. They just don't feel worthy of, of sharing it. That comes up all the time. It's like, you know, I'm actually really impressed with you, by the way, because, You're doing it. You have an email list. You send it out. Like Those things have to happen, right? If you build it, they won't come. They don't know that the book is there. You've had to do book promotion. You've had to do all that stuff. And especially for good-hearted people, they feel like, oh, I'm doing something wrong if I let the world know or if I raise my hand. See, that's
1: false humility.
0: Okay, that's what I want to talk about.
1: You know, people think that humility means if somebody says, wow, that was a great show, you're supposed to say, oh, no, it isn't.
0: No, that's not, that's
1: actually, that's ego. Because that means you think you did that show. Yeah. But if you know, no, I didn't do this show. Yeah. I'm just a vehicle for a higher power. I'm a vehicle for God. Yeah. God did this show. Right. I'm, I'm like a glove and, and the hand just is moving through me. So real humility is, that was a great show and I'm very thankful that I could be in service. And I'm very grateful that I was the vehicle for that, yeah. And so, when people are afraid to put out their work, they think it's humility. It's not humility; it's camouflaging an ego that, well, this is my work, and this is no, no. You have a responsibility to all of us. You've been given something, and you've been asked to share it with us. You have a moral obligation to put yourself out there for us because you have something I don't have. Mm. And so I deserve to get a share in that, and you need to share that with me. And so when people put themselves down, they don't realize that's so unkind. What what right do you have to do that to me, to put yourself down? What right do you have to do that to me, to rob me of the incredible gifts that you've been endowed with, to share with everybody else? You have a moral obligation to go out there and do something that, only you can do in the way that you can do it. And it doesn't have to be big. I think that's what gets people, you know, it's, it gets in the way. That if it is, if it isn't big, it isn't important. Yeah, That's so not true. It's just just do it. Yeah, And then the rest, let go. Oh my God.
0: Do you know Daniel Pink? He's the only other person who said that. And I said to him, what do you do about sales? People hate selling. They think sales is like duplicitous and, and just gross and sleazy snake oil and he's like, No, uh-uh. He's like, if you can make a piece of software, if you can make a painting that makes me feel something, I'm sorry. You don't have the right to keep it to yourself. You're morally obligated. Exactly. Right? See so this is the thing that you said before early on. You said people carry so much shame. It's false humility, right? It's ego. Oprah, I was at her taping of Super Soul Sunday recently and she said, every day at Harpo Studios I take an elevator from my dressing room down to the stage and just pray that God would give me the words to be a vehicle because no. I couldn't do it. There's yeah. no way I could do it. Right. No way. And the other thing that is part of this that I want to ask you about is money. See, I've learned a lot about this, pulling myself up through spiritual ropes. Money to me is very, it's a spiritual dance, all of this stuff, all of it. And people put money on a pedestal. Okay. Who am I to have it? I don't want it. All this stuff. We don't feel deserving of it. And I'm curious what your thoughts are around money and having money. Well,
1: if we read what's written on the money and God, we trust, <laughs> such a
2: good
1: then we'll, we'll be okay with it because we, we, we don't trust the that. money. We trust God. We realize that the money is a trust from God and said, here's power that you can use to do good. And if you do good with the money, it has value. If you don't do any good with the money, there's no value to it. They say a story about Rothschild, which was a, a huge philanthropist, and he turned to his accountant and said, bring me the accounting of my assets. So his accountant brought him the accounting of his assets. and He says, what is this? He says, sir, you asked for your assets. He said, I asked for my assets. I wanted the accounting of my charitable giving this year. He says, sir, those are not called assets. He said, no, they are. He said, what I have, I could lose. What I gave away is mine Mm. forever. Those are my assets. It's so so good. So, so, you know, if you're here to do good and you've been blessed with the finances to do that, great. That's amazing. But when you hear people whereby the money has blinded them and has really replaced what true value is, Mm -hmm. the value of the money is not having it. Mm -hmm. The value of the money is doing what you can do with it
0: yeah so correct me if i'm wrong because you're such a scholar and i've only learned everything from you so if you haven't taught it to me i don't know it i heard that one of the questions god asks you when you go to heaven is to answer for all the beautiful gifts that he gave you that you didn't take that were available i think that's one of the most beautiful things i've ever heard and to me, it means I see it like God made this amazing, let's, I mean, this is a lot deal, but okay, like a buffet and it's all there. Skies, mountain views, sushi rolls, friends, right? And and most people I see, they walk up to the buffet and they take like a crumb and then they sit on the floor and it's like, have it, come have it. There's There's a lot of shame around having joy, having things, taking things. First of all, is that true? Is that one of those questions? And can you explain that a little bit? There's
1: an interesting idea called blessings. That Before we eat something, we bless. And what does it mean to bless God? We're not just simply saying thank you. What we're saying is, this came from you. This is a gift. And a gift is called the present because the presence of the one who gave it to you is in that gift. And when you have that, you feel that person or that Reality in your life. And so not to celebrate what has been gifted to you. It's not just ungrateful. You're ripping yourself off from the real value of having it in your life. Mm -hmm. So when you don't realize what you've been given, it's not just like, oh, it's not nice that you didn't thank the person who gave it to you. It's not nice to yourself because you don't know what you have.
0: Yeah. I want to talk about that for a second. So Brene Brown, you know who she is? Yeah. So she said something so fascinating, which is that in her research, the hardest emotion for people is joy. Mm-hmm. She tells this experience where she says she was coming home from a date night with her husband and they were actually getting along. And it was like one of those special nights. It was, it worked. It was a good night. And they were walking back up, walking up to her beautiful home. Her kids were inside. They were going to pay the babysitter. And she had this feeling come over her. a Feels so lucky. I'm so happy right now. I love my home. I love my husband. I love my kids. Four seconds later, she thinks, oh, my God, I'm going to open the door and someone died. Oh, why didn't I just think that? Th- that's all going to fall apart. So she said in the research, she sees that joy, we, we fall into joy. We surrender to it. Foreboding. We get scared. So we go, I don't like joy. Feels too vulnerable. I'm going to go back to fear and bitterness. Mm-hmm. Right. And we miss so much. Like... We have to literally learn to practice tolerating being in a state of joy. So she says something fascinating. So she said, what I learned is if you want to be able to hold on to joy, gratitude. Mm -hmm. When we then insert gratitude, we hold the joy longer. What do you think about that?
1: I think we're, we're afraid to have joy because we don't believe we deserve it.
0: Yes, that's it.
1: And we've started off with this assumption that you have to deserve it like that same day in the park i started thinking about my children i started to think like what did i deserve to have a child like and then i thought what could i ever have ever done to say god you owe me a child there's nothing i could even think of doing in a million years that would add up to oh guess what i think i've earned a child send one down please And I realized, well, wait a second. So if there's nothing I could have done to earn one child, two child, thank God we have seven children. So then I think I just should be thankful and not feel guilty because it was a gift. Just enjoy it. I want you to have that gift.
0: Yeah, well, it brings me back to the single greatest thing that anyone can give anyone is unconditional love. And one thing I read recently, and I think I told the audience, I read this in Donald Miller's book, He said, if it's actually love, you can't earn it. If you've been given something that felt like love, but you earned it, it might be nice. It's not love. Love cannot, it can only be given. That's what it is. I think the very sad truth is that most people I know were not given that. In order to be loved, they had to be a straight A student. Um, If they did something bad, the parents would withhold love, right? And I think what you teach is no, you're loved. You don't have to earn it. I remember coming to you. I did so much soul searching and at one point I became really religious and, and whatever that means, I don't think I was really religious. I think the I think I'm the most religious now and I don't know what that even means, right? I'm not but I was like quote unquote doing all the things, right? And looked a certain way. And I came to your house and I knocked on your door and you said, This is what the first thing you said to me, you said, Your light is off. where's the light? What happened? You look really unhappy. And I said, well, I thought this is what you wanted for me. I thought you want me to do this and wear this and eat this and do. And you said, oh, my gosh, like come inside. So we go, we sit on your mirror, pass on your balcony and you were so upset. you were like, I'm really upset. I'm really upset that you would think that I would want you to be any of those things, that that's like an agenda. Right. And I said, so what is it? You know, and you said, don't you know my love for you is not contingent on, at all. Nothing. And God's love, and you said the sweetest thing. You said, Kath, if God had a refrigerator, your picture's on it. <laughs> and um, you said you don't need to do anything. You know, he's so proud of you. And I cried so hard. And He said just, that's all I wanted. He said if I had an agenda, it was that. If I had an agenda, it was that you would know that you're loved. And that's it. And yeah. then you were so sweet. You're like, and you, oh, my God, Do you know how proud God is of you every day? Just you. And this is before you guys. I didn't have a show. I, didn't, I wasn't talking about that. I wasn't making it. But, you know, it was just me, you know. And then I said, well, I'm living in Israel now. And you were like, well, where do you want to be? I'm like, I want to go to L.A. You're like, great. Go to L.A. What do you want to do? Go do it. And I was like, oh, my God, someone gave me permission that I'm loved and I don't have to earn it. I never heard that my whole life. I'll tell
1: you a funny but sad thing. One of the books I wrote, which was about the Jewish holidays, I wanted to call it You Are Loved.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, so my publisher said, um, no, we spoke to marketing experts, and they said that's not a good title. I said, wait a second, I, I would think that's a great title. I mean, you know, a title has to kind of promise something and, you know, and, <laughs> and promise something that people want. And who in the world doesn't want to be loved? They said, no, you're right, but the promise has to be credible. God. And nobody believes that they're loved. And I said, "Wow, that that blew me away." It's like, wow, like nobody believes they're loved.
0: Yeah, and and you've said, Kat, there's so many single people. You know why? Everyone's got their guard up on the date because, like, they're trying to prove themselves. They're trying to. No one believes that there's real compassion everyone's biggest question is, well, are you having fun? If you're not, leave the person. It's like, there's no one seeing this and no one's really being, being given this, right? It's a real problem. And, you know, thank God you gave that to me and now I'm giving it to 15 million people. So yeah, And there's a lot more of me's out there who you've been giving it to, but you can't do all this on your own. So what's the answer? How do we find the evidence that there is love? How do we figure out that we are loved? And how do we start to give that to other people?
1: I think we start by giving it to ourselves, which is probably the hardest person to give it to because we know too much about ourselves and we are too angry and we're too unforgiving. You know, I, I tell my students, give the love that you will give to your children to yourself. And that's where we have to start. We have to start being compassionate towards ourselves. We have to start forgiving ourselves. We have to cut ourselves some slack and say, hey, I tried, I did the choice and that was my department. And so, um, I think that's a really hard place to start because, uh, we all started off with these expectations and feeling that we're never good enough and that we somehow have to earn love. You don't have to earn love. As you said, it's not love. That's business. Things that you earn, that's business. Business isn't bad. It's just not love. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we we have to begin with ourselves. And of course, people think, well, isn't that selfish? No, you should love yourself for the sake of the world. Because when you feel good about yourself, you'll be more good to other people. Because you'll be in a good space. Mm -hmm. You know, you'll feel happier.
0: Yeah. That's so beautiful. One thing that I think you also taught me, you were once making the analogy that if you try to walk up the escalator that's going down, Mm. you know you say this? Yeah. So every kid has gone to the mall with their mom, and she goes up the up escalator, and you say, I'll meet you up there, and you go up the down escalator. And you said, but what you realize when you do that is she can just stand there and she's going up. you got to be ahead of it because in a vacuum, it's not just staying in the same place. If you stop, you're not stopping. You're going down. So... What I've learned, I did a few years at the UCLA Mindful Awareness Research Center and it was so hard for me, but so good for me. And I learned a lot about meditation and I learned that the mind is constantly worrying because it was created to protect us. It's looking for problems all the time. So it's like 70,000 thoughts a day and there's a lot of just like this negative and a lot of people live in there. So if we want to love ourselves and get ahead of all this racket that's in there and all these old tapes, what's like one thing, one thought you think when you wake up in the morning or one thing that helps you set all that and direct it for the good rather than getting caught up in all these self-loathing, all these thoughts that right. just like don't. So
1: I heard it put really well. We'd be better off speaking more to ourselves than listening to ourselves.
0: Ah, oh, so good.
1: Yeah, I don't remember who said that. I apologize, I should recognize who said okay. that. But I think we're listening too much to all that negative, that voice. That's not me. Why would I say those things against myself? And so we have to start talking to ourselves more and taking you know, more direct discussion inside. But there's this dialogue going on in my head, and, it, and I'm listening to this all the time, and he's saying all these nasty things to me. And I say, you know what? I, so I have to talk to myself more. I have to talk to my higher self, which is what I mean when I say God, the higher self that I share with the universe. And so I think when I listen too much, I get down. But when I start to talk and I take ownership of what I'm going to say, and I start saying positive things to myself and positive things to my higher self, and I say, God, you're my higher self. Give me the clarity, give me the strength, help me serve. I just want to do good. That's all I really want to do in my life. I just want to serve good and, 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 and feel that I could do a little good. And, I, you know, there's basically three things. There's looking good, feeling good, doing good. A lot of people are spending a lot of time looking good, but they don't really feel so good by looking good. What we have to work on is doing good. And very often when you do good, you feel good. But don't do it to feel good. Do it because it's good. And the feeling will eventually come, but if it doesn't come, you did good. And you can say, I did good. And I think we have to acknowledge that, not wait for somebody else to say, hey, you did good. You know, you have to be able to say, I did good. I smiled at someone. And I, and I tell my students, start with something small. Every single one of us knows somebody that today, if you sent them a text and said, so I was thinking about you, I just wanted to send you my love what you just did for that person, kiss a couple of words, you know? And we don't realize how easy it is to do good.
0: Yeah. Speaking of that, last night, you talked a lot about, you were in our home and we were talking about love and you gave this beautiful class. And I, I, I thought it's such a, a model for for business. Like we, we all talk on the show all the time about business is human connection. It's empathy. And you talked about those four things, and how love is about making space for someone else. Love is about getting out of, out of the center, right? And, and putting somebody else in the center. Do you want to just give us one of those things so that people could maybe think about doing more of that in their relationships?
1: Well, you know, I talked about, uh, and people can go to my website. I've got classes on this. I talked about four ingredients to love. One was creating space in your life for somebody else. The other one is acknowledging and respecting and nurturing Their otherness of you. They're not you. The third is giving of yourself to other. And the fourth is allowing them to do the three to you. And so I'm going to skip to the third, which is giving of yourself to other. And the way you do that is by giving time, by being present, by listening, and not even maybe saying anything. Because as you said, we want to be seen. We want to be heard. And so many people are not being seen, are not being heard, and then what they'll do to try and be seen and try to be heard, which will often be not strategies that were so healthy and that even get the goods you're looking for. If you want the goods, do the good.
0: Yeah, and just be present. Tell us where we can find you and, and find more about you and join well, your email well, I've,
1: I've list. I've got or a website called rabbidavidaran.com.
2: We'll link to it so I can just click on
0: yeah. it. Yeah.
1: And um, yeah, I've got a large library of downloads, free, free teachings. I've written eight books, articles. I produce little animations that are hopefully inspirational. And
0: um, yeah. Thank you so much for Thank being here. Um,
1: Thank you so much.
0: I always feel like I learned so much whenever I'm with him and this was no exception. Thank you guys for letting me share that with you. Here are the takeaways. Number one, it takes one to know one and it takes one to help one. Your pain is often your greatest asset. Number two, pain without purpose is suffering. Pain with purpose is power. Number three, your soul print will never be repeated in all of history. You can never repeat what anyone else has done because it's you. Number four, it's not about living life on your terms. It's about living life on our terms, the win-win situation. Give up me to be we. Number five, whatever is broken in your bag is telling you where you've been trained in empathy. Number six, there's no trash in your life, only treasures. Number seven, you have responsibility to all of us. You've been given a gift and it's your moral obligation to share it. And number eight, when you feel good about yourself, you feel good about other people. So love yourself for the sake of the world. All right, now let's celebrate your wins. Megan posted in our Facebook group and she said, My art project, the rainbow mirror, is displayed in the window of the toy store I was working at in Highland Park in Los Angeles, and people are taking photos in it on their walks. It's a win because I'm able to bring joy to the world right now, and equally, it's bringing me joy. It's just like my favorite mantra my creativity heals myself and others. Megan, that's so cool. It's beautiful. We need art like yours to add a burst of color and brightness in our lives and remind us that we are loved you are truly healing people through your gift. If you want to check out Megan's work, you can go to her website, therainbowmirror.com. If you guys have a win you want us to celebrate here, or you have a question, or you want me to do a little coaching with you on the show, DM me on Instagram at kathy.heller. I'd like to start bringing some of you on and coaching you and seeing if we can add that to the show. I think that that would be fun. You can DM me on Instagram at kathy.heller, or you can email us hello at don'tkeepyourdayjob.com. I can't tell you how grateful I am that you take the time to listen to this podcast. It means the world. I have no doubt there's so many other things you could be doing right now. Do you feel like I'm changing your life in any way? Do you feel like I'm making an impact? If you do, would you share this show right now? It would mean so much to me if you would tell people to subscribe to the show. And we're going to actually start a campaign where when you go ahead and post about it and you tell people to subscribe, you can let us know, you can send us an email with the subject line subscribers, and we will put you in the running. We're going to be then choosing every month, uh, once a month, a few people who have been helping spread the word and be an ambassador to let people know to subscribe to the show. We're going to be sending you a gift to say thank you. So please share this episode, tag me, post it on Instagram, share it with a friend, share it with someone who you think might really resonate with what we're talking about. Any episode from the podcast, I think that the world might need this kind of inspiration now more than ever. If you want to join me, I'll be going live in my book club Mondays and Wednesdays, and I'm going to be sending you guys some really cool stuff every single week. So sign up for my newsletter, kathyheller.com/newsletter, so you don't miss some of the personalized videos and takeaways, and some of the extra cool trainings we're going to be rolling out very soon. kathyheller.com/newsletter. I'll leave you with a song of mine. Have a healthy, sweet Easter, a beautiful Passover, and I'll talk to you on Monday.
2: When counting sheep I'll be here for you I'll be here for you When you need to talk Take a good long walk I'll be here for you, I'll be here for you, of all the people on the planet, if I had my choice I couldn't have planned it better than this, it doesn't get